If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today, we are going to have Neil Malhotra come on and talk with us about a book that he recently edited and just came out from HBR, Frontiers in Social Innovations. Before we do that, let me just remind folks that we have got a webinar coming up on April 14th on strategic planning. And, you know, we've always thought of this particular webinar as really being everything you wanted to know about strategic planning, but were afraid to ask. And so this is a great opportunity. Webinar lasts an hour. It costs nothing. We It also, by the way, is our single favorite webinar. More people register for this webinar and give us great feedback on this webinar than any of the other ones that we do throughout the year. So if you think your organization might be thinking about strategic planning in the coming months or year, it would be great for you and maybe a board member to attend this webinar. Now, I am so excited to introduce Neil Malhotra. And here's why. I have spent some time really researching this person online, reading some of his writings, and oh my gosh, we are in for a great conversation, really about social innovation. And so let me share with you a little bit about Neil. He is the Edith M. Cornell Professor of Political Economy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. In addition to that, he is also the director of the Center for Social Innovation. Now, as you know, if you're teaching at a graduate school of business, there are probably some courses that you often teach. So let me share with you some of the courses that Neil teaches. He teaches a course on leading with values, a course on ethics and management, and and also a course on measuring impact. And so if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you know we're all about values and ethics and, frankly, measurement and evaluation. So to say the very least, I was salivating when I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, we've got to get this person on the podcast. Now, he recently edited HBR's Frontiers of Social Innovation, but I've also got to share the subtitle 
of this particular book with you because it's a series of articles that are designed in a way to really help all of us understand how we can be better at social innovation. So the subtitle is The Essential Handbook for Creating, Deploying, and Sustaining Creative Solutions to Systemic Problems. And whether you are in the nonprofit sector, the for-profit sector, or a government agency, this is something we all need to be thinking about. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful introduction. Uh, again, I mean, just the more I dug into the work you have done, the more I was just like, I cannot wait for this conversation with Neil. And I actually thought a good place to start. I always feel like it's cheating when someone's edited a book or published a book. And I'm like, I want to start with a preface because like, OK, great. So you read the first few pages. I've actually read Neil. I've not read the entire book, but I've read more than the first few pages. But I, I want to share a quote from your preface. And then I'm hoping we can talk about it. This quote that you had written was, Solutions often require active collaboration of stakeholders across government, business, and nonprofit sectors. Yep, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think kind of one thing that's important, and I think we, one reason that's in the preface of the book, is that one of the lessons is that social innovation is not the domain of a specific organizational structure. I would say when people thought about this space 20, 30 years ago, it was really about how do you manage nonprofits? And that's what we were sending people into. But if you actually talk to a lot of younger people today, they're really interesting. They are socially minded, but they don't just want to work for nonprofits. Um, some of them are interested in the government sector, but increasingly they're interested in the for-profit sector or hybrid models like B corporations. And so one reason we call this book Frontiers is to sort of update our thinking of social innovation where we're looking at diverse types of organizations that have to work together if these solutions are actually going to be scaled to make real impact. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting because that's something that I'm in just such such incredible alignment on. That, and you, But you talk about this in the preface where really if we were to even go back 35 or 40 years, when you thought about solutions that required social innovation, you pretty much thought nonprofit sector and maybe government sector. You weren't thinking a lot about the for-profit sector. I think that's exactly right. And moreover, I think on top of that, we're thinking mainly of philanthropic capital as the engine of growth and sustainability, whereas now nonprofits, I think, are understanding the importance of earned revenue and potentially even moving to majority or even 100% earned revenue models. Um, and I think that's just a, a sea change in how nonprofit leaders have to think about being effective managers. And they actually have to kind of think more like for-profit business leaders, not simply, okay, we're going to spend most of our time fundraising, um, but more thinking about the business model and its sustainability. It's one of the things I really liked about your book is, as an example, you know, obviously you've got the chapter on scaling. And I think almost immediately following that, you've also got the chapter on how to produce a product at an affordable price so that very low income people can afford it. And I think you're right. That really, that is because nonprofits are having to move into a more entrepreneurial space where they're actually selling a service to a customer. I think that's right. And I think kind of the distinction, though, is that it's very hard to have unicorn type companies in the social innovation space. And that's because the target customer base is not wealthy people or even middle income people. It's people who are on the lower income scale where you have to have cheaper products and services sold at cheaper prices. 
Um, and as a result, more of the traditional investing community is not going to invest in those. So it's just very hard with your social innovation idea to go to Kleiner Perkins and say, can you give me, you know, like $10 million? Because their business model is we're investing in a hundred companies and one will be a billion dollar company. And if you have no chance of being a billion dollar company, they're not going to give you the time of day. So that's why I think there's different forms of capital, like impact investors. Um, and some of these are offshoots of more traditional investing companies. And they're looking for different things. So it's not just about risk and return. They're also looking for impact, um, what the mission of the company, et cetera. It is for-profit, but it's, it's a different type of for-profit enterprise because of the unique customer base. I could not agree more. And I will say, I think one of the ways that nonprofits have a competitive advantage, and I'm actually going to use an example of an organization here in Atlanta. There is a nonprofit staffing organization that works with homeless people. And for years, they could not, first step staffing could not break the two and a half million dollar annual budget barrier. Like literally for a decade, they grew quickly, they plateaued at two and a half million and they could not break it. And then they had this really innovative idea. They said, well, what if we were to buy a for-profit staffing company? So a $2 million organization bought a $20 million for-profit staffing company and folded it into its nonprofit. But the reason I said they had a competitive advantage is they did leverage some. So they did get some, some loans in order to purchase the business, but they also used philanthropy. So about a third of the purchase price was paid for through grants, which do not have to be repaid. And that actually means that they, frankly, have a lower cost of capital and can be more competitive. So I just wanted to throw that out as an example. You're 100% right on that. There's also a lot of favorable tax treatment, et cetera. And so I have no doubt that nonprofits are still going to be a major source of social innovation. Um, I will note that that other countries have been talking about tax regimes that privilege for-profit companies that have social missions, et cetera. So I, I could see a regulatory future that kind of evens the playing field a bit. Um, but yes, I think everything you said is very important to note. But, you know, make hay while the sun shines. So if you have the competitive advantage now, use it to build your moat, right? Yep. That's right. That's right. Um, I, I will say, though, that it, I think a lot, if you talk to a lot of the younger people, I think they recognize that. But I think many of them also see the value of the for-profit sector doing more in this space. And I think a lot of them think more as entrepreneurs, which is when you're working for traditionally large companies, Fortune 500 companies, how can you drive social innovation from inside of those companies? And, and some examples are kind of unique and kind of not immediately obvious, but still can kind of promote good social outcomes. So just as an example, uh, there was an executive, uh, a woman at Alaska Airlines. This was pre-pandemic, uh, but one of the issues was that uh, women who go on maternity leave and have a child oftentimes lose their frequent flyer status. And this actually makes them less competitive in the business marketplace, because you can imagine a lot of the benefits of frequent flyer travel help you succeed in corporate America. And if you lose all the status you built because you had a, a child, that can put you at a disadvantage. So she just had an idea, which was, if you have a child, can you put your frequent flyer status on leave as well? And Alaska Airlines implemented that policy and then many other airlines saw that and started copying it. So this is just a simple executive, you know, a, a businesswoman at Alaska Airlines 
who, because she thought in a socially minded way within a large company, was able to affect change across an entire industry, just by thinking kind of creatively. So I think, you know, there's just many ways to think of yourself as a social innovator. I first of all, what a really great idea. And as someone, I travel a lot for work, so I'm on the road about 125,000 miles a year. And you're right, there's real value to the status benefits that they give you. There are significant values. Sometimes just like you get to sleep better on a flight. You get to sleep better. You have time to work on a flight. There's just, a, frankly, I think for a lot of people, time is the most valuable thing. And then there's a lot of things that benefit you with time. You get access to customer service agents ahead of other people, et cetera. So it's just that losing this benefit was creating gender inequity. And I think if you don't think about the world in those terms, uh, it's very hard for like senior executives to see the world that way. But be, by being an entrepreneur, you can kind of elevate these issues and affect real change. I love that. That, that That's phenomenal. I, admittedly, as I was reading your preface, there was one organization that I was thinking about, and that's, um, that's SolarAid. I don't know whether or not you're familiar with SolarAid, but they are an NGO, and their mission is to eliminate the kerosene lamp from Africa because the kerosene lamp and, and kills more people in Africa than lions, than hippopotamus, than almost anything else. And so it's interesting because, like, you know, in your preface, you talk about the importance of theory of change and measuring impact and also design thinking. And and obviously, you also start with this concept of this can't just be the nonprofit sector by itself. The traditional international development model of saying, okay, we're going to eliminate the kerosene lamp from Africa would make this almost an impossible goal because you would have to get enough money to electrify the entire continent. Like literally, that's, you know, that that would be the traditional design thinking on it. And instead, what they said is, well, what if we could, and this is where I'm like, I swear they had to have read your book, even though it had not been out yet, they had to have read this book because they said, okay, what if we could figure out how solar panels can be manufactured at a very, very, very low cost. Okay, now we have a distribution problem. How do we distribute them? Oh, what if we find entrepreneurs throughout the continent who want to become distributors? Often they're already vendors of some sort. And so so now these vendors have another, you know, have another opportunity to generate money. They already have relationships, you know, within their local community. And so so now they've essentially created one set of entrepreneurs who are the manufacturers, another set of entrepreneurs who are the distributors. And so not only are they working to electrify the continent, but they're also working to really build the economy, even though even though that's not the stated goal or their mission. That's a fabulous case study. And I think it reflects a lot of themes of the book. So one company that's talked about in the book is D-Light, which also does sort of solar powered cooking in Africa. And that uh, product actually came out of the D school at Stanford. So part of what we want to do in the book is to say, we want to share our knowledge. Um, I think a lot of people say, oh, like they contact us. Like, how can we learn about what the Center for Social Innovation is doing? How can we learn about what the D school is doing? How can we learn more about design thinking? And we're, we just don't have the scale to talk to everybody. But one idea of this book is to kind of create that scale. And we, I don't believe that knowledge should be in an ivory tower. I believe it should be shared, should be distributed widely. And D-Light's original work inspired the market creation of this sector, of these kerosene alternatives like the company you're talking about, which actually innovated on a different dimension, which is the distribution. 
which was very problematic for Delight, was the distributional sector. And it also shows that impact can have a lot of dimensions. So yes, that kerosene is more dangerous. It's also really bad for the environment. Um, and just the transition from, away from those kerosene to more solar is gonna be great for reducing carbon emissions. Now, obviously Africa is not producing even close to the amount of carbon emissions as uh, you know, the US or, or China or other places like that, but every little bit helps. And it kind of does show that um, part of your innovation is not only your company, but market facilitation. So we actually have a chapter on the book on that. And I think kind of a good mindset of a social innovator is if people start expanding your product in new lines, that's not something to be jealous or guarded of. That's a good thing. That's like how you scale is to say, here's a market where one didn't exist. And I founded this market. You know? Right, right. And then and then also, I know this is talked about in the book also, then making sure that you're always iterating based on the market's feedback. So, you know, so you're always, you kind of have this continuous feedback loop and it doesn't take you three years to make a change. It might take three months or six months. Yes. And, you know, there's a lot of like lean startup methodology there. Um, but I think it also is sort of a unique contribution of design thinking. Um, and I think a big issue of design thinking, especially in this space, is to not be paternalistic, but learn from the user base. So one of the big things they do in the D school, and especially the classes, they, they make people go and talk to the, the users before doing anything. And at first, I think many students kind of don't, just they don't see the point of it. They say like, okay, like why am I going to an underprivileged area and talking to people? Like, but then they sort of realize, huh, there's a bunch of things I didn't quite understand about this sector, this group of people, this customer base, because I'm in a privileged bubble um, that now I learn and I can actually iterate and kind of make new product and service design choices. Um, I mean, there's been kind of many examples of that. So there's been kind of medical device technologies that they try to spread into developing economies. And if you actually don't know the religious and cultural traditions in those areas, well, your medical devices may not be compatible. And it's very easy to say, oh, well, you should just be rational and use our medical devices because they're obviously going to save your life. But if you're not respectful of traditions that have been there for hundreds of years, you can't just come in there with your product and expect behavior change, take up and impact. Right, right. It's interesting. One of the one of the things I would compare that to, and I often talk about the global push to end polio throughout the world. And, you know, it, it was initially kind of launched by Rotary. But the reason I it makes me think about that is, you know, Rotary did not have one strategy for the entire globe. They had, you know, a, they essentially ended up developing a country by country strategy because, you know, because if they took something that was effective, you know, in one, on one continent or on one country, it probably would not be as effective on another. Yep, totally right. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like, yeah, like that, that that's something I think you're you're 100 percent right about it. And we see we do see the effectiveness of that, whether it's delight or, you know, Rotary's push to eliminate polio from the world. Like, we see the effectiveness of that because they're making progress. Yep, I totally agree. And um, I think vaccine take-up is just such a good example of this, where a design thinking methodology would be so much better and effective than more paternalistic methods. I think maybe the last like year has taught us that. It's interesting. This this almost leads into a book that you have that's about to come out, Leading with Values. But can you say a little bit more about that? 
Yeah. So, I, I mean, actually, in the other book, Leading with Values, we have a chapter that opens with vaccines. And this book was actually written before the mRNA vaccines were uh, implemented. It was actually about more traditional MMR polio vaccines, which, although, you know, those, those rates of take up have been falling over the years. So, you know, it used to be something like 95%. And now it's, and especially in certain parts of the country, they've been going down. And so I think kind of what the book says is, oh, you might think that what the point we're trying to make is that, oh, only like uneducated, irrational people don't take vaccines. Instead, our view is, let's try to understand the reasons why they're not taking vaccines. And their reasons are actually similar to the reasons we have on other moral issues, that they're driven kind of by our moral intuitions. So if you want to address an issue, you need to kind of actually get to what is causing the lack of take up. So an example is one of the moral intuitions is purity. Um, that people view vaccines as impure. So the right solution is how do you formulate a vaccine that people won't think is impure? And so that's actually been very effective in various communities. So for example, there's been imams that have endorsed um, halal versions of vaccines. There's been rabbis that have endorsed in Orthodox Jewish communities vaccines. And if you have like a sort of secular intellectual saying, hey, you're really dumb if you don't take this vaccine. Uh, that's not going to work. But if you have their own religious leader saying this is clean and this is pure, that's going to be a lot more effective. Um, you know, I, I think another issue is just kind of who the authority figures are and who have trusted authorities. So if your authority figures are the medical establishment, you have to understand in many places in this country over the last 10 years, the medical establishment created opioid epidemic. So when they hear the medical establishment saying, hey, take this, everything's okay, that's not authority figures they trust or respect. So it's actually getting to the authority figures that are more respected in these communities to deliver the messages, to say, hey, yeah, I, that happened in the opioid epidemic, but this is different and you can trust this. One of the things that you touched on, and I just really want us to drill down on it, um, and this is true, I think, when it comes to vaccines or any type of harm reduction or really any behavior, we don't get people to change their behavior by shaming them. I think that's exactly right. And, and part of that is, is that like a big belief of mine that actually I think permeates through both of my books is there's not that many psychopaths in the world. Like it's a very small portion of the population and you can't really do anything with those people. Most people are trying to do the right thing. Like that's where their heart is. Now they may come to a problem from a different perspective than you, but if you want to convince them, it's about learning their story about how the world works and trying to frame it through their stories and their values, not your own. Whereas if you say, oh, well, my values are right and I'm shaming you for different values, that may make you feel good, but it's not going to make you an effective leader. And I'm much higher on effectiveness and impact than saying, hey, I was, I was right. You know, like that, that may be good for you, but it doesn't help the world. Right, exactly. That that then feeling like, okay, I had the ethical and moral high ground, even though I was not effective. That's right. And that, I mean, frankly, I think that's actually a huge problem in a lot of the social innovation space right now, is many people say, well, I have the moral high ground, rather than how do I be effective? Yeah. And and that's where, to get back to your, your current book that's out, HBR Frontiers and in Social Innovation, like that's where I think, and you, you've said this, but to just really drive it home, that's where the design thinking really comes in. That you know how you know how how do we design this with the user in mind and whatever the user's value system is? 
I, I totally agree. And that's why I think design thinking has caught on. Um, and the D school is, is really ground zero for that. And it kind of is associated with IDEO, which is like a big company in this space that does consultancy. And I, I just think that this idea of design thinking should not be restricted to only a few people. I think as many people that can know about this as possible, it will make the world a better place. This is not a secret sauce that's proprietary, et cetera. So I, I hope that people read that chapter and say, hey, this is a replicable methodology that can be applied to many different sectors. Here's kind of the different steps. Here are the online resources, things like that. The the other thing I just want to make sure we touch on, because there, there are at least two really good articles in your book about this. And and that's also the importance of measuring your impact. So, you know, you can you can have design thinking. And I think I might have read somewhere in the book, I forgot where, like, like as an example, you know, let, let's say you create an app that is supposed to be cre- creating a change in behavior or help with education or whatever. Just saying, okay, 20 million people have downloaded this app and are using it does not mean it's effective. It could just mean you developed an app that's addictive and people are using it. Exactly. Or uh, data on how long students are on the app or things like that. Um, and this is really what the, the theory of change is about, is kind of distinguishing outputs from outcomes. And real impact is on the outcomes and actually showing the pathway from your intervention to outputs to outcomes is quite complicated. And not everyone would have access to randomized controlled trials or the experts who, who do them. And so if you're just a social innovator, how can you implement and measure a theory of change in the absence of some of these more kind of gold standard methodologies. And so we kind of go into that. And the ed tech space is really a classic example because it's a a simultaneously a space where there's so much data, yet how do we know the data is good? So clearly, I think if you say, oh, we have an addictive app, that's one thing. But even test scores. So test scores are kind of the main metric. But is that actually kind of the right metric you want to uh, do? Because there's plenty of these apps and ed tech products that teach to test specifically. Um, about are students actually learning? Is it actually kind of instilling love of learning, growth? And is it eventually going to make them have good lives, good careers? Those are much harder questions that are much harder to measure. But test scores are something we can measure. So these are these are just the tough questions that social innovators have to face that traditional just for-profit business people don't face because they're kind of have you know profit metrics, product market fit. That's just a much simpler world than people that demand what's your social impact. I I really appreciate that you say yeah, that that's a simpler world. Like it's a little bit more complicated if you're in a nonprofit that's trying to make a social impact or a for-profit that's trying to make a social impact because you're not just, you know, you're not just measuring your effectiveness based on, okay, has our budget grown? Do we have a surplus this year? Yeah. And if you're an impact, so let's say you're a regular investing firm. I'm not saying what they do is simple. It's obviously very complicated, but you basically have two dimensions, which is risk and return. And you're kind of looking at the frontier on those two dimensions. When you add a third dimension, which is impact, it just is complicated because it's not like a curve. It's like a three-dimensional object you're trying to like optimize on. And actually how you balance those three things is really unclear. Um, so just I'll give you an example. This isn't actually talked in the book, but uh, microfinance faces this. We do talk a little bit about microfinance in the book, but they face this issue a lot, which is how do you know that microfinance is making an impact? 
And let's say, for example, you say, we're going to just give a lot of risk-adjusted returns that are positive to you know, poorer people. Now, on one hand, you would say, hey, we're making a difference in the world. We're extending capital to poor people, allowing them to grow their business. And we're shutting out a lot of people who don't, who are going to be capital risks. But is that a real impact organization? Or do you need to reduce your return, increase your risk, because you need to reach the real poor people that don't have access to capital? So Paul Brest, who's one of the authors of the book, and his colleagues have introduced this idea of additionality, which is also talked about in the book, which is a real impact investment means that the private kind of investment sector wouldn't have invested. That's kind of the definition. Now, that's a controversial definition. Not everyone agrees with it. The book talks about the disagreements around it. But that would argue that you actually want to maybe invest in lower performing loans as a microfinance company to because you want to trade off on impact. And impact is tied to this concept of additionality. So it just shows is that if you're just Bank of America saying, let's extend mortgages. That's like a much simpler problem than a microfinance company saying, how do we balance risk, return, and impact? Right. I, I, absolutely. On a, on a much, much smaller scale, there's an organization that we uh, did a strategic plan for last year. And as part of the process, we took each of their programs over a five-year period and analyzed their income expense and net for five years. And they had one program that was losing a significant amount of money every single year. But when we when we presented this to the strategic planning work group, what we how we presented it was not this program is losing X amount, you know, year over year over year. Instead, we presented it as this is one of the programs that you're doing a lot of fundraising for. So you have to make sure that as in this process, you're getting what you want out of this program because I don't remember the exact number, but 40 cents on every dollar that you fundraise supports this program. I think that's exactly the right way to put it. And kind of the purpose of philanthropic capital, which is there's not going to be pure market outcomes that serve everybody. So markets do a really good job for most people. They don't solve every problem for every person. And in the absence of those market-based solutions, that's where the philanthropic capital can make up those differences. I think the way you phrased it is exactly the right messaging. And again, like I, I know that's a smaller scale. It's not a, it's not a national, you know, microfinance program or something like that. But that is really the way that I typically view it. I'm like, okay, if you're losing money from an income and expense standpoint, you know, in terms of your earned income, okay, you just need to know that you have to do something to make that money up. And so, are you getting the bang for your buck? that you're doing to, to make that money up? Well, I, I would say just on that point on, it's not a national, I mean, I think all these lessons are relevant for very small new social ventures as well. So a lot of those issues on the um, microfinance I was talking about, I've actually, you know, we've worked with a company that was just making 20 loans. They were just starting out and these issues kind of came up. They had 200 possible applications and they only had capital for 20 loans. So I'm just saying is you don't have to be like, the head of the Gates Foundation for the lessons of this book to be relevant for you. I think it applies to different sizes and scopes of organizations. And I agree. And I am going to give our listeners a little bit of a tease because we're not going to have time to talk about it. But there are a few chapters that I think are going to be really relevant. Um, most of our listeners are smaller and medium-sized nonprofits. I agree. I think this book is very relevant for them. But there's a few chapters that we're not going to have time to talk about that listeners 
there are many reasons why you should get this book, but there's some great chapters on leadership. One by Kim Starkey that's called High Performance Leadership. Oh my gosh, actually lays out, okay, in order to be a successful leader, actually driving social innovation, this is what your thinking needs to be. This is what your management style needs to be. These are some of the personal qualities that you need to develop. None of us were born with these qualities. These are some of the qualities you need to develop. So that there are several chapters like that. So listeners, make sure you get a copy of the book, Frontiers and in Social Innovation, which is by HBR. Now, Neil, before we end this interview, I always do an off-the-map question, and I've got a great one for you. You have shared with me that you ran for office when you were 21 years old, and there's got to be a really, really good story behind that. Well, I just graduated from college, and so I was in between what I wanted to do, so I kind of moved back in uh, with my parents at home. And I, I come from a community called Saratoga, California. So it's just kind of at the outskirts of the Bay Area in the South Bay. And it was a um, community that was changing a lot demographically. It was becoming much more racially diverse. And basically, I kind of wanted the leadership. And it was also becoming younger. So it's traditionally an older community. So I just wanted the leadership to reflect the population changes. Uh, there's five people on the city council. So I said, oh, I think one person should be representing communities that are increasing in growth. And I didn't win the election, partly because three people pooled their resources and ran on a slate. So they kind of won, which you're allowed to do. And um, but I think my candidacy changed that city for a while, because now if you look at the city council, it's extremely diverse in terms of many different backgrounds, ages, races, gender, et cetera. And it more reflects kind of what the community is now um, as it's changed over the decades. That's awesome. But I also have to say, it's bold as a 21-year-old to put yourself out as a candidate for office. It, it, it shows really that, you know, you're a bold leader. So that's really incredible. Yes. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think I'd be more likely to do that at 21 than 41. And, and part of it is, I think, kind of, that's why I think with, with young people, they actually have the risk-taking and boldness and why a lot of these social innovation solutions um, will, you know, are, from the book, I think are very relevant to them. And I think that also the book is also for all ages. So I think it speaks to those students who are age 21 that want to make positive change, but also people who are transitioning outside of their private sector careers, starting to work in the nonprofit sector, serving on nonprofit boards, and, but want to recapture their 21-year-old spirit. I think the book is for them too. And, and let me also just say one other group of people that I really think this book is for um, those chief executives or executive directors who, you know, maybe have been a chief executive for 5, 10, or 20 years. If you want the opportunity to really expand how you're thinking about the work you're doing, this book will help you do it. Some of it might be things that you've already been exposed to, but there's going to be some new things in there and there's going to be some really good reminders. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it is hard to find a book that speaks to both people that are new and people more seasoned, but I really think this book is is for both of those populations. Awesome. Well, Neil, th thank you so much for coming on. And listeners, I know you want to f find out how you can learn more. So I'm going to give you several resources. First of all, Stanford has a hub of resources that's just its tools for social and nonprofit entrepreneurs. And you can get that at sehub.stanford.edu. 
There's a couple more online resources I'm going to share with you, but their URLs are very long. So we're just going to link to those in the show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. The first is the Impact Compass. It is a tool that Stanford offers for gauging your organization's impact. And the second is a five-minute video with Neil and his co-author. The video is called Class Takeaways, and it's five minutes where they share the class takeaways from their class, Leading with Values, which also is the title of the book that is going to be available in e-format right away and in print format later this year. But so, please, honestly, that five-minute video is worth every second of your time that you're going to give it. So we're going to link to that at our website as well. And if you like that video, and honestly, I really, really grew for that video. So if you like that video, I know that you're going to be like me and want to get a copy of Leading with Values as well. So please make sure you check out the book, Leading with Values. Neil, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me and for all your insightful, wonderful questions. Listeners, if you missed the one URL, sehub.stanford.edu, or if you want to make sure that you get the Impact Compass, you watch the Class Takeaways video, or find out more about the book, visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com. We are going to have the links to all of those in the show notes. While you're there, don't forget to register for our April 14th webinar on strategic planning if your organization is thinking about starting a strategic planning process sometime in the next year. And finally, if you've gotten value from this episode, there's a couple things I'm hoping you're going to do. First, please share it with someone. Second, there's two other episodes that might be of interest to you. One is this is an oldie but a goodie. This goes all the way back to episode 80, um, and it's with Nathan Fleming, Nonprofit Partnerships with Healthcare Systems. And the second, episode 173 with Tanya Tassi, Creating Lasting Change Through Advocacy. Listeners, that is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And I say it every week, but I'm going to keep saying it because the lawyers make me. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This episode is for informational purposes only, and not surprisingly, should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. If you or your organization find yourself in need of professional counsel, please find a licensed, qualified person who specializes in the area that you need advice in and get the advice that you need. If you're not sure who to reach out to, you can contact me. And if I know someone, I'm happy to make the connection.